As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. In my house, there's almost nothing on our guests. On my coffee table in my living room, there is a 100-page-plus research report from J.P. Morgan 18 months ago, which brilliantly lays out the demand dynamics of what we don't talk enough about, which is emerging markets. Joining us now, Christian Malik, Global Head of Energy Strategy at J.P. Morgan. COVID got in the way. Let's just be honest. China's shutdown got in the way. Do you reaffirm what you said 18 months ago about the durability of demand in EM? Uh, For sure. Actually, I think it's always good to be here again. And uh, on demand, what I'd say is that I think we're actually uh, stronger in demand growth on a medium term than we thought we were. And the main reason is that when you look at all the fuels in the world, particularly the clean energy fuels, in the the second edition of that report, we showed that the, 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 the system, the distribution of that energy will uh, basically fail the generation of clean energy. So you've got all these jewels being generated. You can't get it to the consumer. What happens is we end up with a massive gap of energy um, in terms of what to fill. How do we fill that? We have to fill it through the traditional fuels. What that will do is drive more demand for hydrocarbons and therefore more demand for oil. Right. I mean, I mean, we can spend an hour with you on as jewels, folks, as a physics uh, estimate of energy on the thermodynamics of EV vehicles and all that. But I'm not going there this morning. What I will say is you got to get traditional hydrocarbons from Saudi Arabia and such right. through the Straits of Malacca and up the Pacific Rim. Is that model still in place? Absolutely. And in fact, when you think about Saudi share of demand growth, um, and we've written about this extensively you know, a few years ago, that mm-hmm. ultimately with the industry retreating in terms of investments in oil, what we'll see is Saudi share of demand growth going up to between 50 to 60 percent of all demand growth wow. by 2030. Now, just to give you perspective on that, the average was 11 percent the last 30 years. The low was four when we had shale at its max, but a high cost of equity, you know, more cash return to shareholders, a high cost of debt, higher for longer rates, and clearly a push to drive away from the transition has meant that the industry is massively underinvested. And look, we weren't a fan of this underinvestment thesis for a very long time. We turned bullish with the super cycle in 2020. I always like to say that, but that, that investment now is now way too late. Do presidential politics matter? given that crude production in America is close to a record at the moment? I think it does in the sense that you could you could potentially push for more investments in shale, but the issue with shale, and it sort of goes back years, five or six years ago, we were wondering, how is it when oil prices go up, you see so many barrels just turning up, blowing up lots and lots of wells. That was fine then, but we sort of reap what you sow. Now you've seen productivity slow. 
So as a result of the way that was fracked, well data showing us that productivity is now slowing. So even if we said, right, go drill, baby, drill, right? And in lots of investments, even if banks were to turn around and say, listen, we'll finance you, the issue is the wells themselves. It's not magic dust, you just throw over wells. That slowdown is happening, and the marginal cost is going up. The, the one thing I probably learned this year in all markets is that we tested 70, and we bounced back. Looking at prices now, 94 on Brent. Looking at the bond market, yields pushing 5%, 520 on a mm. two-year and 450 on a 10-year. Conversation we're having in the bond market is what is the new normal, is it the old right. normal? Right. What's the conversation like in the commodity market? What's the new normal for commodity prices given everything yeah. you just told us? Well, I love the way you talk about it because I think the before and after in terms of we, you know, we were very bullish and then we sort of took time out this year. We're very bearish in December and we've basically gone back to bullish. So we're not just sort of, we've been quite tactical. The before and after is rates. The flow of capital into new oil supply is just not what it was like in the last 30 years. You had cheap money, a lot of productivity. So to answer your question, uh, what that's doing is driving the long-term price, the back end of the curve, up to 80 and north of 80. We think <coughs> it probably normalized towards $100. And just to sort of give you a bottom-up sense, the companies themselves, if you take capex, dividends, buybacks, debt, and, and windfall tax in this country, in, in, in Europe, you need at least $80 to be able to invest in marginal new oil. That's a fact, that's, we've done, we did the analysis, we call it the cash break even. So that's very supportive for the $80. The question we've had a lot today is why 100? Well, when you look at spec capacity of OPEC, over the next few years, the only ones that are gonna be able to fill that spec, fill that gap in supply is OPEC. And historically, when spec capacity has fallen, to sort of between five and 10% of total capacity in the world. That's a risk premium, which we haven't, I haven't used that term for a very long time in oil, maybe last year briefly, that will drive $20 above the 80 to 100. So when you talk about OPEC being the big swing factor, mm. we've been hearing a lot that Saudi Arabia and what they decide to produce is really gonna determine whether things stay at 100, whether things stay at 90, or whether things stay below. Do you reject totally. that? Do you think that that's sort of uh, a simplistic way of looking at it and in the near term, they mm. have less control than people give them credit? Well, it's, 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 it's a question that's very, 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 do they have control, do they have not have control? I think ultimately, the sides have played their cards very well and done a fantastic job managing the volatility in oil, right? Uh, with that in mind, if they're taking greater share of demand growth, they have a sort of fiduciary duty to make sure they're stabilizing the price. So people talk about an absolute price. I dispute that. I think what they're trying to do is make sure it stays within a range, which by definition means if we see a very cold winter or hurricanes and prices spike very quickly, they'll be managing the upside just as way they're managing the downside. So. I've told generalists this morning, put your seatbelts on. It's going, to be, it's going to be a very volatile super cycle. It's not going to be a straight line. And therefore, in some ways, I think the bullish factor to that in equities is Saudi can control that range. So generalists don't say, wait, this is way too, this is way too high octane for me. So right now, that's the reason why you think it's 100 and not 110, right? You think that right. that's where they're going to kind of cap it. But what about, say, Russia and the fact that they just banned exports of gasoline mm. and mm. things of that nature? Are there other areas that could kind of go against what we're seeing from Saudi? I think other areas will be demand. And I think we're in demand discovery. I mean, everyone's got a view. What, what price does demand? We've looked at historic analysis, and $100 oil is not that expensive. Uh, in fact, it's sort of closest to $70 real. Again, before and after, it's higher rates. You've got higher rates. 
and therefore what's the real sort of level of normalized price the market demand the world can can acclimatize to we don't know we think 110 to 120 is fine um, and therefore at that price if we start to see massive demand destruction we're wrong that's the point where i suspect saudi and russia will have to sort of manage that downside once again so the message this morning is buckle up buckle up buckle up we're very long we're very bullish but be very tactical when you get positioned in. That's quite something, TK. It is, there's a lot, you know, this is really important that the people we talk to, they all have different views. We heard that from Mr. Morris of Citigroup, different from Mr. Malik of JP Morgan. And it, you gotta respect the density of the granularity, rather, John, that these people study, something where we just go, well, Brent's 92, <laughs> and that just doesn't get it done. It's way more granular. I'm about to do that right now. Brent's 94, <laughs> thanks you guys at 90. Christian, thank you. Thank Christian Malika of JP Morgan on the latest in the commodity market. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us right now with the most important interview of the day, because when it's like this, you triangulate to foreign exchange. Jordan Rochester is G10FX strategist at Nomura. I got one basic question. I'm told I can't get back on the plane and go back to New York unless I get a 119 print on sterling. How quick is Prime Minister Sunak going to get me to a 119 sterling? That's something that could happen before year end. The, the moves aren't as rock and roll as last year, though. We haven't got a Liz Trust versus a Lettuce moment right now to kind of get you that move lower. But we were at 118 in March earlier earlier this year. So it's very possible that 119, we could be talking in the next six weeks. Euro, parity call earlier this week on this program. Jane Foley, Rabobank, she said maybe. Where are you on that now? I was going to say, is that the call? It's definitely a maybe, but that, that requires your next guest to tell us about oil, Christian. So if oil goes to 100, Okay, we get to 105, maybe 104 in euro. But to get down to parity, we need that energy squeeze that will hit that trade balance. Because what's happened? The euro area's got a lovely current account surplus once again, thanks to lower natural gas. So we need a cold weather forecast for October. So things need to go wrong in Europe. 
we've done enough on the US side. That's not where the surprise comes from for you. I think so. The, the US, in the next two CPI prints, what's going to be interesting is oil's up 7% this month, but gasoline futures are down. So we're not going to get a really hot CPI print on headline like we got for last month. We got 0.6 month on month. The next month could just be 0.2 for headline. But if gasoline futures were to spike back, we get another hot CPI for the US, followed by another one if oil goes to 100. Then you could be talking parity in Euro from a US perspective. In general, when we talk about dollar strength right now, is it a dollar story or is it an everything else story being weak? No, it's both, Lisa. It's, so the dollar's strong because we've had a, a basic reinflation. We've had not just energy prices going back up, but these UAW strikes were interesting, interesting seeing some signals that car inflation could come back. So it's really hard for the market to look for a dovish Fed right now, especially with continuing claims falling lower once again. So we're not seeing any material job layoffs in the US. And then that's the US side. In Europe, it's horrendous in terms of growth. Look at the UK services PMI. We had one of the biggest falls in the employment index within that PMI today. So it's quite clear that unemployment's rising in the UK and we're seeing softness in German labor market data as well. So to answer your question, it's always both because it's currencies. We always do both. The European data for growth and for employment is looking pretty shaky. What's the level of strength for the dollar where it becomes truly disruptive? Well, in terms of the disruption, we're already getting close to those levels. As John said, parity in euro, uh, that would be a disruptive level for sure. Oil, I want to talk a little bit more about crude and the move we've seen. You said that maybe if something goes wrong with gas, what about Brent and WTI? What about that? We're already in the 90s on Brent. Doesn't that change things for Europe? It already has. It already has. That's why I think the first half of this year when energy was weak, I thought that we could see Euro finish the year higher. But that's completely changed. I didn't expect Brent to go above 90. Well, you changed from 115 to 105 on the Euro, right? Yeah, because of that Brent move, for sure. And we had this horrible range. So macro PMs have had a very, really tough first half to the year because Euro has been in the yo-yo. And everyone gets excited at the highs, excited at the lows, gets stopped out, chasing their tail. I think we, we're going to see a proper breakout. FX has lacked a trend in the dollar this year. We're now getting a trend thanks to the energy story. So last year was thanks to Vladimir Putin. We got a big trend in the euro. This year it's thanks to MBS in Saudi Arabia. Why isn't the yen weaker today? Well, because you haven't had a hawkish move from the Bank of Japan. What's, what's quite interesting is we thought the forward guidance would change. The forward guidance still says potential additional easing, easing could be used. So that was a bit odd, given we thought Ueda shifted a little bit more hawkish with his article from a two, about two weeks ago. And then the main problem for Dolly-Yen is it's quite easy to say cost of carry is very expensive to be long the yen, so therefore don't buy it. But you've got the Ministry of Finance threatening FX intervention risk. And we've even had softer words from US Treasury Secretary Yellen about maybe Japan can intervene. She hasn't said it that, that exclusively, but she's definitely softened her tone. So in other words, we can take a look at the yen and just say that nobody wants to bet against the central bank and nobody wants to bet against foreign intervention, that they're likely to deploy. But it has nothing to do with the differential at this point between the monetary policies. Oh, it absolutely has everything to do with the differential. And if the, F, if the MOF threat of intervention wasn't there, we would be closer to 150 right now. Uh, if the idea of the BOJ turning hawkish wasn't there, we'd be closer to 150. But because of that threat, people are being reluctant to get into that trade. But if you were to look at the cost of carry, it's even higher than what it was last year when we were at these exact same levels. But Lisa, it's deja vu. I was in September, New York. In New York hours, the, the Ministry of Finance came in and intervened at Dolly N around 150. It feels a bit like deja vu, so people are just a bit reluctant here. You and I are on the same page. First thing in the morning I do is I look at Swissy Frank, different pairs to four decimal points to just see when is Swiss franc in a signal strength. 
You say Switzerland Stocky is a play. C-H-F-S-E-K, Swissy Stocky, is a trade to play here for long Swiss franc. Why will the Swiss franc strengthen? Let's start with that. Yeah, absolutely. So we always have our main dollar views, our sterling views, but then you have to talk about RV. And what we're talking about here, Tom, is long Switzerland, short Sweden. Now, Switzerland has seen massive appreciation of its currency over the past year. Right. But I think that's a trend that carries on. We're going through a period of an adjustment for Switzerland. Last year, before they started raising rates. It was negative 75 basis points. We're now around the 150, 175 on the front end. So you're getting paid for holding Swiss in a yeah. bank account where last year you were being charged. We've known that for a while, but we're still going through an adjustment phase and the banking repatriation yeah. flows back into Switzerland. Those Swiss banks were lending to American corporates, European corporates. They're not going to do that next year because they've got nice yields at home. So we're seeing a lot of that money come back into Swiss, boosting the currency. And the second reason is when growth slows down, you go along the Swiss. Okay, I, I'll go with that, except the SMB to me is almost a sovereign wealth fund with the equity ownership they have and particularly the load-to-boat load position on Apple um, as well. Does their equity stub within the central bank, does that preclude usual strong Swiss dynamics? I think the, the, the SMB is just taking the view that we're happy to take a loss on our FX reserves. And in fact, what they're doing is they're selling their foreign holdings as well. So they're actually consistent sellers of their 80% bonds, 20% in equities, right. so the largest part will be in the fixed income space, right. but we've seen 11 billion of intervention per month from the Swiss. Give me a level on Euro-Swissy, the core pair there to watch, 0.95, you know, 0.94. It's easier to trade this uh, Swiss stocky than Euro-Swiss. Euro-Swiss, I've actually stayed out of it. It's one of the most non-macro currency pairs in the yeah. G10. Euro-Swiss. Swissy stocky. It's the Swissy most London stocky. thing I've heard all week. Well, you know, I mean, it's 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 romantic. We got to bring these people in. I mean, they're all dazzled the by your, your interview exchange. with Daniel Levy, and I got of course, Jordan people. Rochester here, and you know, we got to bring our FX people in. They stop me, you know, a guy stopped me today. They watch in Singapore every evening. That's very cool. And they watch me, and they're popping FX trades in Singapore off what we're blathering about. So I got to go to Rochester here to get some romance in it. Can we just finish on I'm that? I'm going to Mayfair and look at a Ferrari. So that's Sweden versus Switzerland. On the Swiss side, that haven currency on that growth slowdown, you think money's going to go back there. Who else is in that bucket? Because it used to be Japan. What else is there? Good question. Yeah, it's, it is euro. That's kind of why the euro hasn't been rock and roll. So you're asking about the 105 down to parity view. We've got better trades to do. Short sterling versus the dollar is a better trade. The way we're playing euro is short euro versus CAD. But the reason I mention euro is because we are having banking repatriation. For a long time, German banks, French banks had negative interest rates. American corporates asking for money. Let's go for it. Let's lend abroad. That's now reversing because they've got positive yields at do, home. Do you have a level on DXY where you go, OMG, you wake up in London and go, wow, DXY 107, 110. What's, what's the, the, the prism you have of DXY where things change? Well, by what do you mean? So for the Fed, for it to have an impact you, on where... I mean, for us, for people trading the market... You've got 10 seconds to give us a number before yeah, we hit the spike. 110. 110. There you go. That's, that's what we're scaring. 110. 110. Jordan, thank you. Jordan Rochester of Namara. Oh, Swissy stocking. Sarah Malik with us now, Chief Investment Officer at Nuveen. Sarah, the fear is out. Price down, yield up. Should we be in a sense of panic or frenzy or caution, or is this a normal adjustment that we will survive? 
Well, there's two issues the market needs to adjust to, and that's what's going on with the economy and what's going on with rates. The economic soft landing narrative is definitely being challenged, and the markets had started to price that in. So that's what the markets are adjusting to. And rates, of course, interest rates higher for longer, inflation higher for longer, all of that together is going to be a headwind for the markets also. Uh, you, we think long-term, a lot of cash still on the sidelines. So I don't think the bull market's over, but short-term, you do need to be a little bit cautious. The two areas we like are technology stocks and dividend growers. Technology stocks still less correlated to economic growth. So I think they can uh, have a rebound from here. And then dividend growers is an area of the market that's really underperformed year to date. And they tend to perform well in markets that have that are going down, so they have less downside captured. So those stocks, I think, are cheap and could protect portfolios and provide income. Sarah, what you just said is actually incredibly controversial today. It might not have been controversial <laughs> two weeks ago, but today, basically, you're going against everything that everyone is saying true, at a time true. when you have tech going down to such a degree and leading the declines. So how is tech defensive at a time when they potentially could be interest rate sensitive and when they have exploded, the big seven, the seven magnificent stocks have absolutely driven everything we've seen so far in terms of gains in the U.S. equity market. Well, let's start with semiconductors, which is an area that we like. September tends to be their seasonally worst month in terms of performance. So not surprised to see that. They peaked out in about July. But if you look at the tailwinds for semis and software, which is our two favorite areas of technology, first of all, artificial intelligence. We don't think that it's hype. It's a real trend. It, it did get a little bit crowded, but I think it'll last for many years. Second, inflation has been increasing because of energy prices, which, which we think will moderate um, after the, the huge upswing that we've seen. And then continued services spending, which has been around for a while. That continues to moderate another uh, tailwind for technology stocks and interest rates. We see the Fed basically one and done from here. One more rate hike. What got priced out of the market next year was two rate cuts. Um, you know, we, we didn't expect rate cuts for 2024, but as the Fed pauses again, I think these are all positives for tech stocks. So a few of these headwinds that have come in the last two months as the sector did get crowded will move out of the way. Also, uh, looking at portfolio managers, they generally were um, underweight tech, uh, some of these mega cap tech stocks coming into this year. So you could see a lot of people stepping in as for catching up to get their weighting in their portfolios to the right level. And then clients are holding still about 25% of their portfolios in cash. That at some point needs to come back into the markets. Does it though? I mean, this is sort of the key question. Does it, if you're earning 5% on it, actually, maybe it looks pretty good. And there's a question about whether we've actually seen the effects of rates that are now the highest going back more than a decade, 2007, 2006, depending on which denomination you look at. Are you saying that these are rates that we can live at? That basically yeah. we have seen the effects and they haven't been too bad? Yeah, I think what clients learned this year was there was an opportunity cost for holding cash, especially when inflation is at the levels that it was and the markets have done what they've done, you know, year to date, even though they've moderated a bit in the last couple of months, markets are still <clears> up well above cash year to date. So there's an opportunity cost for holding onto that cash. Um, so I think clients are, are you know, figuring that out. And right. when it comes to high interest rates, you know, the 10 year at over 4% is a headwind for the markets, but it all depends on what economic growth does. And if economic growth stays strong, I think the markets can handle a tenure right. that's at these levels. Sarah, this discussion on technology is so absolutely critical. A huge body of retail's taken the story if institutional is not. Now the gloom is rates up, there's a duration argument about technology, I get it. Where in the income statement will you see tech superiority? Are they going to outperform on revenue growth or do you go down where they surprise with a better marginal free cash flow? 
And the answer is, is all of the above in the sense that the good news for software companies is they don't need to rely on pricing power. And as inflation does continue to moderate, which we think that it will, uh, take, software companies are less uh, affected by having to lower their prices because and, and hold on to pricing power. Uh, margins are important for tech stocks. We thought, saw that with Meta this year where they were ahead of the curve in terms of cutting costs and preserving their margins and other companies have followed, which is important too. And then strong free cash flow growers. You look at Broadcom right now is a company that we like. Uh, Strong free cash flow right. ability to buy it back up to like nine billion in shares. Uh, VMware is going to add free yeah. cash flow to their model. So all of the above for these companies. Lisa's buying a new iPhone today at Covent Garden. Sarah, should she be also acquiring Apple shares at the margin? Apple is a company we've not been as bullish on for many reasons. Number one is the post-COVID normalization of their unit growth, I think is going to be an issue for them. And even with the upgrades of the iPhones, I'm a user of an iPhone myself, but upgrades have been pretty incremental recently, so they're not as exciting. I'm glad Lisa's excited about it, though. Um, and also, their next big product is VR, which has a very high price point. So I think those could be struggles for Apple's, which has got you know premium multiple as people have, have that's been a consensus holding for many investors. I just want to set the record straight. And Tom, you know this. I am not a line waiter. I am not someone who's some sort of rabid enthusiast. I cracked my phone, so at some point I'm going to have to get a new phone. There's going to be a Covent Garden lined up. Right. Be, oh my God, it's Lisa Bram with surveillance. <laughs> yeah, with, Can we do a right. selfie? Let's move on. Sorry, I'm curious though, just as we sort of take a look at the whole week, is 6040 still profoundly challenged at a time where we're Good seeing question. bonds sell off at the same time in tandem with stocks? And it's challenged in 2022. I think 2023 has had, you know, had a better return for the 60-40 portfolio, but it taught us a lesson about diversification and alternatives, an area we really like outside of the traditional 60-40s, private credit. It also tends to be resilient to an economic slowdown. And I think that's really important right now is owning areas of in your portfolio that are less susceptible to economic slowdowns um, can continue to grow. Um, you know, I did also have one more question for all of you, though. You talked about Katy Perry. Are you Katie, are you in the Katy Perry camp or Taylor Swift? Oh, well, you know, I got to go with Katie, frankly. But, but I love what Taylor's been doing with the national. I mean, she and Antonoff, what they've done has been extraordinary. She's moving the needle on GDP. I mean, can Olivia go out there and, and move the same needle? You're asking him. I'm not engaging. <laughs> That's all. Was that a question for Sarah? Or no, no, it was okay. for you. Right. You're going to try to just completely Sarah, ignore Sarah, you. she's Sarah. ignoring me. It's Friday. Thank God. I'm newbie. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We needed a voice near the end of our sojourn to provide balance and a view forward. There's no one in London that can do that like Janet Henry, global chief economist for the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, wired into Asia literally like no one we talked to. You've got a lovely view. And then there's China. What does HSBC, with all of your contacts, say about the stability and the economic recovery of China? HSBC has, has a, a perhaps more balanced view of China than some of the hysteria yes. that hit the markets yes. um, not so long ago. I think we're not going to get any quick answers one way or the other on China. And we need to learn to live with that. You know, financial markets always want to know with certainty where things are going to be in two years time and they mm -hmm. want to price it um, today. The fact is in China, what we have seen recently is some signs of stabilization in the economy. Industrial production showed some improvement. Retail sales showed some improvement. Credit yeah. data is showing some improvement. Are there still major challenges in the property sector? Yes, and we are seeing a gradual rollout of policy stimulus that is now being reflected mm. in monetary data. Are there major issues in local government debt stocks? Yes, there are, but are right. they providing liquidity? Yes, this is a multi-year story of ongoing stabilization and the next round will be structural reforms to deliver the long promised um, higher quality of growth. On monthly and three month annualized and within your research note, we see a disinflationary tinge that dovetails with Steve Major's long term conviction of price up, yield down. That's been tested the last 72 hours. Do you guys stand with a disinflationary tendency which filters in to lower yield? Well, from a macroeconomic perspective, for the last two years, Tom, as you know, I've been talking about a deterioration in the growth inflation trade-off, a different mix of lower growth, higher inflation, um, and that probably requires a different policy rate level than we were used to in a pre-pandemic era. Yes, we have some disinflation, but there are plenty of risks out there. Even the Fed's Goldilocks view that they set out at the FOMC, the level of uncertainty around that they are admitting is quite high. Um, but by the same token, it's not so long, as you've already highlighted, that everyone was forecasting a recession. First half of last year, yep. this year, second half of this year, now a soft landing. The fact is, this is an unusual cycle. The last three years were unusual. Why does the market keep fitting with the idea that this is going to be a very ordinary downturn with a very ordinary Fed response? Has it's something very changed, Janet, from your perspective, the relationship between the labour market and price pressure, just based on those forecasts. And Chairman Powell himself hesitant to ascribe a narrative to a median projection, but let's have that conversation anyway. We have done over the last couple of days. They're essentially saying we can get inflation down to two with unemployment not climbing much above 4%. What do we learn from that? We've learned that they are extrapolating what's happened so far. Right now. Yes. <laughs> so you're right. I mean, it's remarkable. We, we've, we've never been in the recession camp. We've been in the more protracted slowdown, the rolling recession camp, a couple of years of sub-trend kind of growth. But now the Fed has overtaken us 
on the unemployment rate. You know, we only had unemployment at 4% by the end of the year, but we've got it at 45 by the end of next year. The Fed hasn't even got that, having previously said that it was going to rise by more. It has been uh, extraordinary that wage growth has gone from nearly six to just over four. But the recent progress has actually been a bit slower and everyone's talking about the strike. We don't know. It could be that actually there are other areas of the economy where, because of collectivised wage bargaining in Europe, because of public sector pay in the UK, because of strikes in the US, that it's not a linear story. Actually, it's a, it's a bit rocky on the way down. And the disinflationary process, as we've discussed before, is not continuous. We've got other areas of inflation volatility and the markets are going to have to accept that they really are willing to keep interest rates higher for longer. So people who go on the Federal Reserve website and they open up the summary of economic projections, should they view them as forecasts or aspirations? What are they? They should view them, obviously, that every central bank, given their inflation targets, their inflation priorities, that is their primary goal, and they will do what is required to get there. Obviously, what we got in the Fed projections, and to some extent we've got in other central bank projections as well, is that they're almost willing to take a little bit longer to get there. The Fed is saying it's not going to be at target till 2026. Um, so, and they have said that their, their, their central scenario is now that they can get there by being a bit slower, a bit more patient about getting there. They can get there without a traditional recession when the economy has some kind of deep contraction. Um, but as you, no one ever reads page two, page four, question four, question five, what's your certainty about this range of forecasts? It's still very high. It's not where it was during the pandemic, but it's still high. Are you basically saying that what we're seeing this week in markets is a sea change about our understanding of central banks' patience with such high inflation, that they will tolerate it for quite a bit longer, and that means it will become more entrenched in a way that people previously had not expected? I'm not saying they, they will tolerate it staying at these levels, and they certainly will not tolerate any signs that it's reigniting, whether that's from wage pressures or elsewhere. They need to see further progress. They need to be confident that that progress is going to continue. And obviously financial markets, at the first sign that maybe a central bank is done, is celebrating the fact that the next move is going to be downwards. And actually, the more that financial markets do that, the more likely it is that a central bank that's trying to tighten financial conditions actually stops raising rates. So I think that what they're telling us is that they are determined to drive it lower. They might be patient about the timeline with which they get there, but they're not going to take any risk that it becomes entrenched. You had that from the Bundesbank again overnight. The game theory that you just laid out, does that mean that the yields that we're seeing now are finally self-fulfilling and will actually create or foster the tight credit conditions that are necessary to get to the Feds and the other uh, central bank's goals? I mean, in other words, do you think that these are sustainable or do you think that this is what we need to get lower? I think how financial markets um, react, obviously I'm just a macroeconomist, uh, will be a function um, of what central banks obviously do. Um, but the central bank is trying to tighten financial conditions. It's trying to slow demand. They still think by slowing demand, they can impact on inflation and ensure that the inflation continues to slow. But we keep talking about the, all of the uncertainties that are still out there. Um, we've got a 
renewed inflation volatility, not least from oil and from food. Um, we've still got uncertainties regarding labour markets. The truth is they don't know what they're going to have to do, which is why, as well as saying we're ready to raise rates higher, we're ready to keep them on hold for a very, very long time, it's actually all still about the data dependency. So, yes, they're still watching all of these factors as long as they can see progress, whether it's a consequence of higher yields, whether it's a consequence of what's happening in equity markets, whether it's a consequence of what's happening in spending behaviour. Uh -huh. As long as they see the inflation data coming down, that will be enough to become more confident right. about the medium term. I, I have to ask this question. It's with immense respect for what HSBC and like Bloomberg went through with COVID. I mean, we've heard from the quarantines of HSBC and the travels during COVID in China. You walk out of the Bloomberg building in Hong Kong, you go across that historic tramway and there's one Queens Center, your building, your, your place. It's the foundation of Hong Kong finance. What's the stereotype right now we most get wrong about the new Hong Kong? <clears throat> That is a very um, broad um, question. Well, it's um, a Friday, so we it, know it, it, it is a Friday. Yeah. Um, but actually, you know, as an economist, um, I always think that sometimes we, we think about countries. You know, it, obviously, as an economist, I love it that people want to talk about countries. They want to talk about central banks. But a lot of the things that happen, whether it is in Hong Kong, whether it's in Dubai, whether it's in London, whether it's in New York, is actually more about sectors and it's more about companies. So whatever you view you have regarding the macro story, when we're thinking about where the true transformational shifts lie right. in the coming years, and a lot <clears> of it is in technology, there is still a lot of dynamism well, and there's still money hey. being provided. Provided to, to companies. I'm going to make some news here. That. Ten seconds. Are you a Hong trying Kong Trying to cause optimist? some trouble. That's what you're trying to do. Uh, am I a Hong Kong <laughs> Are you a Hong Kong Absolutely. As someone that, that lived in Hong Kong um, yep. for five years, I'm still a Hong there Kong optimist. Go. Are you, are you done on that subject? I think it's important. It I think is, yeah. HSBC, Steve Major, Agreed. Janet Henry, these people Fantastic. have a prism in there. You know, all the stereotype blather we deal with, our Steve Engel. Since we're causing trouble, Eva I miss Mann. David Bloom. I miss David Bloom. Yeah, so well, he's trouble. He was great. You know, he was trouble too. He's trouble. Janet Henry, thank you. Of thank HSBC. You. Appreciate it. It's good to Fabulous. see you. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.